0: Good evening, everyone, and a very warm welcome to the LSE. My name is Cathy Campbell, and I'm head of the Department of Social Psychology, and it's my great pleasure to chair the evening. Before I introduce the speakers and the format of the event, let me say a few words about our lecture series and its associated celebrations. Psychology at the LSE is 50 years old, And this year and next year, we'll be holding a series of events to celebrate and emphasize the past, present, and future of psychology in the school. LEC has long been proud to be the home of societal psychology and to connect our discipline to public spheres and pressing societal issues. And this has been the case right from the beginning of the department, where we looked at the influence of television on children, We did studies of perception and racial prejudice, communication, language and thought, job satisfaction. To our more recent work on identities and intercultural relations, culture and cognition, health and community development, public attitudes to science and technology, communication and safety cultures, and the psychology of organizations and of everyday life. Our 50-year Celebrations seek to draw attention to the importance and indeed the necessity of integrating psychology in the larger intellectual program of the social sciences. And we also seek to bring together psychologists and other social scientists to reflect on how the disciplinary traditions of psychology have engaged with social science and address topics that are central to both psychology and to the social sciences more broadly. Enough of the context. Let me introduce our speakers in the format for this evening. Professor Reicher will give his lecture, and then Dr. Ali and Dr. Haworth will produce brief responses, and after that we'll open for questions from the audience. Just to introduce our commentators first, Dr. Suki Ali is from our Department of Sociology, and her work focuses on the interplay of genders, sexualities, race, and class. With particular focus on the process of racialization. My colleague, Dr. Howarth, is an associate professor of social psychology and an expert on the psychology of racism, multiculture, and intercultural relations. Our guest speaker, Steve Reicher, is professor of social psychology at the University of St. Andrews in Scotland, and he's an inspirational social psychologist. And just to bring in a personal note in 1992 Steve was the external examiner of my own PhD at the University of Bristol <laughs> that was long ago and I remember saying to my supervisor please please get him as my examiner he's going to be one of the most inspirational social psychologists of our generation and certainly 25 years later my prediction was was definitely right Steve is the author of world leading books many journal articles And over the years, he's held many positions of leadership and received many honors in social psychology and in the social sciences more broadly. His work has covered a wide range of issues related to intergroup relations, social identity and collective action, the social psychology of tyranny and oppression, and the problem of crowd behavior. His work on crowd behavior has been particularly path-breaking having provided the conceptual and empirical tools to critique and reformulate traditional conceptions of crowds as sites of irrationality, de-individuation, and deviance. There are so many things I can talk about, but just to touch on one, his recent well-known involvement in the BBC experiments on tyranny and oppression have provided a fundamental reference point for all of us for thinking about human behavior in conditions of social inequality. Steve's work has been a valued resource for all of us who seek to sustain psychology as a social science. And we're delighted that he's contributing to our series and delivering tonight's lecture, which is entitled, Not in Our Name, Contesting the Misuse of Psychological Arguments in the Immigration Debate. Thank you all for coming, and welcome, Steve.
1: Okay, well, well, thanks, Cathy. I, I did ask Cathy to be brief on the grounds that, you know, if she tells you how wonderful I am and then the, uh, the talk is complete tripe, uh, the contrast is all the greater. So, so, so thank you, Cathy. Um, it's not only a pleasure, it really is. I mean, one says this all the time. This time it's true. It really is a privilege to be here celebrating 50 years of uh, social psychology at LSE. Let's see if the technology works. It does. 50 years of social psychology at LSE. And indeed, in many ways, that means 50 years of social psychology in the UK. That's what we're celebrating. And in many ways, what I'm going to try and do today is to try and persuade you that there is something worth celebrating. To tell you something about our small, little-known, much-misunderstood discipline. And to try and persuade you that it has something to give in understanding our world. Indeed, to say that it is a necessary part of the jigsaw of understanding the nature of our world. How to challenge it, perhaps. How to change it. As I say, the story starts here. 50 years ago, 1964. Before then, there was social psychology in the UK. In particular, Michael Argyle was at Oxford. But this was the first place to have a department of social psychology. Three years later, Henri Tajfel went to be a professor at the University of Bristol. And for many years, Oxford, LSE, Bristol were the golden triangle which dominated our discipline. But I think more than anywhere... The course here, the master's course here, has populated social psychology not only throughout the UK, but throughout the world more than any other. So as I say, we are talking about the very origins of our discipline in this country. And here they are in the early days. There is a picture from the early 1970s of the Department of Social Psychology. And at the centre of the picture is Hilda Himmelweit. The foundation chair. Apparently, I didn't know her well. Not an easy woman, but certainly an inspiration of a woman, and a woman who, in many ways, gave distinctive shape to the discipline, gave a particular understanding of the nature of the social psychology, and that's clear in her various books, in her three most famous books. Her first book. On Television and the Child, which was exploring the question of how a new technology, back then, television was a new technology, how new technologies and cultures shape whom what we are, how the social constitutes who we are. Her second book, How Voters Decide, talking about how in turn we as actors, constitute the political and thereby constitute the society we live in and bring it together. The first text to use the title, Societal Psychology, jointly by Hilda and by George Gaskell. And I don't think George is here today. When he wrote this, he was uh, a young Turk and now he is an Eminence Grise, who has risen to great heights at LSE. In that book they bring these two things together because a societal psychology is indeed a psychology. Which looks at how the human subject is socially constituted and asks how the human subject constitutes society. Those twin questions which are at the core of understanding of our social world. And in a sense what Hilda did was to give substance. To give expression to a particular view of social psychology, uh, which is often associated with Kurt Levine, writing in the 90s and 40s and 1950s. You see, for many people, if you ask what is social psychology, they refer to it as a domain of phenomena. Social psychology is what happens when people interact with others. Social psychology is what happens when people are in groups, thus implying there are domains where social psychology doesn't imply that social psychology is irrelevant when you're on your own. But Levine and Hilda and others make the point, no, what social psychology is is a level of explanation which is relevant wherever and whenever we are. When we are on our own, we are not outside the social world. We're not outside a physical world space which is made in society a technological space if we are interacting with a computer and so on what Levine argued is that what social psychology is about is it's about the social structuration of the psychological field the way that who and what we are is always structured by the social and indeed how the socially structured subject then creates, challenges, changes the world now, I'm going to try and give expression to that view, but a particular version of that view which came from my own experience in another part of that golden triangle in Bristol where I did my undergraduate and my PhD work. What Henry Tajfel, John Turner and others argued was that the way in which the psychologically field is socially structured, is through the mechanism of selfhood. It is through understanding how society shapes the self that we understand how individuals either reproduce or change their worlds. But they made a number of core claims about the self. And the first was the self is often talked about as something singular, as something sovereign. I have a particular self, you have one self, you have another. But they made the point that we all have multiple selves in different contexts. In this context I think of myself as an academic, in another context I might think of myself as British, in the third context I might think of myself as a Spurs supporter. I always win the audience over when I get to that third example, but you see the point. We all have multiple selves. And the point is that if it is true that my sense of who I am determines what matters to me, my values, my priorities, what I want to do in the world, defines to me who is of us, who is part of a common identity, somebody with whom I share those values and those priorities, somebody to work with, somebody who is an asset to me, and who is other who stands against those values, if it is true that the self is so important in constituting me and my social relations, then understanding how the self is differently constructed, differently determined in different contexts, how that happens, then we begin to understand this slippery and complex relationship between the subject and social reality. So, as I say, I want to persuade you of the way in which these psychological dynamics help us understand the world we live in. But I face an obstacle. And a very clear obstacle. When we look at the phenomena which really matter in the world, the phenomena that hit the headlines, the phenomena that get everybody talking, you hardly ever see or hear a social psychological voice. When the riots happened... We had, quite rightly, political scientists and sociologists and historians and anthropologists who hardly ever heard a psychological voice. Or again, when we talk about security and terror, yes, there are occasional psychological explanations. Boris Johnson came up with a rather interesting one just the other day. But most of the time when we discuss these things, again, We don't hear psychological voices. And the topic I'm going to talk about today, the topic of immigration, quintessentially an issue of relations between people, of hostilities, of fears, of conflicts. Again, we don't hear psychological voices. In case you think I'm making this up, I want to give you a quote from a book that I really liked. It's a wonderful book. It's a book by a woman called Bridget Anderson, who, uh, is a professor of migration studies at Oxford. A book called Us and Them. And she says this. Us and Them is multidisciplinary, drawing on insights from sociology, history, politics, law, economics, geography, normative political theory. Not from psychology. So the question is, why? Why have we disappeared? What is the problem? And I think the problem is both external and internal see for many people the representation of the psychological is of the individual the representation of the psychological is when we are talking about what people do as individuals perhaps what people do with each other perhaps pathologies of particular sorts but when we talk about social phenomena that's sociology or politics psychology isn't there at all. The psychological is missing. Where do you see psychologists? Well probably the best known media Appearance of a psychology was um, Geoffrey Beatty looking very orange explaining to you why, particularly, people fancied each other on Big Brother. That was the (laughs) realm of psychology. And during the Scottish independence debate, for instance, I got contacted a number of times, but it was always that and finally, bit of the news. Not the core politics, not the core questions of why would people go one way or another. Why would they trust or not trust particular politicians? How would they deal with uncertainty and risk? No, it was is it leading to more conflicts in families? The and finally bit of the news. But the problem isn't only external, it isn't only the external representation, it's also the internal representation. If you put psychology into Google images, these are the types of images that come up. When you see psychology departments and their logos, this is what happens. The lone individual and the brain. Sometimes that brain is mechanical. Our brains are mechanisms. Sometimes it's even clearer that this is what psychology is. Occasionally, these mechanical beings interact with another individual... But the problem is that on the whole, our own representation of our own discipline is increasingly technological and individualised. Partly I think that's because psychologists have threatened identity in the sciences. And so they cling on to the external signs of being scientific. As if actually science wasn't about collecting the type of information that is relevant to what you are studying. And if you are studying a meaning-making creature like human beings, you have to look at meanings. We feel that we've got to stay in our labs and not go beyond our labs. And a number of people, Susan Condor, a colleague at Loughborough, makes the point that psychologists are very reluctant to be experts. We'll talk about our own studies. We'll talk about the paper that came out in Nature last week but we won't talk more widely, we absent ourselves, both in the ways in which we give a particular representation of our discipline and our refusal to engage. We certainly, in our discipline, have nobody who would be classified as a public intellectual. Intellectual, actually, probably would be an insult to most people, uh, certainly in my department. So I'm going to do a number of things that you should not do. I'm going to violate the types of things that psychologists, social psychologists in general, feel are absolutely critical. The first thing is, I am not simply going to talk about research on immigration. What I'm going to do is I'm going to apply psychological knowledge to an understanding of the phenomenon of immigration. The second thing I'm going to do is to talk more about other people's research than my own. This is not a trail through the studies I've done. You're going to have to suffer one or two. But most of it is going to be drawing on a wide range of psychological, social psychological knowledge. And the third thing I'm going to do is I am going to go beyond the data. And I am going to make claims. And I am going to be tendentious. Now, I don't expect you'll all agree with me. In some ways, I hope you don't all agree with me, but I hope that if you do disagree with me, at least it will allow you to address some of the assumptions that are at the core of this particular debate. So let me now turn to the immigration debate. This is the problem when you have a Mac and you're in a world of, uh, of PCs Something odd has happened, but anyway <laughs> There you are Immigration is a problem We all know it's a problem because we're told it's a problem the entire time Immigration, we are told, is one of the biggest problems that we face It's regularly in the top few when you ask people about concerns and problems So we all know especially if we read the Daily Mail and Daily Express we all know that immigration is a problem but what's the problem? all the politicians have told us it's a problem last year all the major politicians, the leaders of the major parties had keynote speeches on the issue of immigration and the problem of immigration how they were going to deal with the problem of immigration so what's the problem? What is the problem? Why is this an issue? So often taken for granted, we forget to ask why, precisely, is it a problem? So let me then turn to our leaders who are going to tell us this is one of the major issues on which we must decide the future of our country come May. Let me go through their keynote speeches last year. And let me start with Ed Miliband. In Great Yarmouth, he gave his speech. In Great Yarmouth. And he started... It's great to be here in Great Yarmouth. And it's great to be here with Lara Norris, our brilliant parliamentary candidate. This is Lara Norris. And then he continued, she calls herself a politician with a purpose. Actually, no, he didn't. That's a lie. What he did say is, she calls herself a mum on a mission. Now, I'm going to plant a thought which I will come back to. Why does that matter? Why is it significant? He's accorded two different group identities to her. A politician, a mum. Why does he change from one to the other? Well, obviously because in our anti-political age, to call somebody a politician constitutes them as the other and might diminish trust. To constitute her as a mum makes her, in terms Miliband uses later in the speech, an everyday person, like all of us, who we can trust. So Miliband, right from the start, is in the job, in the game, of constituting identities and constituting social relations. And what I want us to look at is how that goes on more generally within the debate, or at least how that is systematically hidden in the debate. Let's look at how all the party leaders introduce the issue of immigration. We'll find something rather interesting going on. Here is Miliband, controlling immigration fairly, is the text on the podium by which he defines the issue. He says, I am the son of immigrants, parents who came here as refugees, fleeing the Nazis. I'm incredibly grateful that Britain enabled my parents to build a home here and have a family. They worked hard and made their contribution to this country, and I am proud of the contribution that immigrants of all origins, races and faiths, have made to Britain over the years. But for that contribution to benefit all our citizens and not just some, immigration has got to be properly managed, and there have to be the right rules in place. There's a problem. That's why I've been determined to change Labour's approach to immigration since we lost the election in 2010. When people worry about the real impact immigration has, this Labour Party will always respond, respond to those concerns and not dismiss them. So two things are going on. First of all, he is persuading us before he tells us what the problem is, that immigration per se isn't the problem. He's not anti-immigration, he's not anti-immigrant, he is himself. How could he be? So not all immigration is a problem, something is, what's more, he is telling us not that he is defining the problem, he's not a visionary leader who has spotted this problem, no, he's responding, he's responsive, it is others, the problem is located in others. Now let's look at the second speech, Nick Clegg, Britain's heritage is a glorious patchwork of different cultures and influences, my mother is Dutch, my mother's father's mother, a Russian émigré, my wife is Spanish, so I do not accept that we are a closed society. But I do believe that being a nation of ease with diversity and difference does not happen by accident. Not a problem, but a problem. Successful immigration systems have to be managed, and for years our immigration system wasn't properly managed. Up and down Britain today, around kitchen tables, in the pub, at work, conversation will turn probably for the millionth time to the problems of immigration The unfairness people feel, the threats to their way of life. So again, he's not anti-immigration. He himself is an immigrant. And once again, he is responsive. He's not defining this issue. He's responding to what people feel. And then, David Cameron. Now, David Cameron can't do the I'm an immigrant bit. (laughs) But what he can do is to stress that part of who he is to be British is to be pro-immigrant. We've always been an open nation, welcoming those who want to make a contribution, build a decent life for themselves and their families. Our openness is part of who we are. It's foundational of our identity. We are Great Britain because of immigration, not in spite of it. Churchillian. But we need to confront the complacent view that says the levels of immigration we've seen in the past decade aren't really a problem at all. Often the people who have these views are those who have no direct experience of the impact of high levels of immigration. So all of them have exactly the same structure. All of them start off by making the point that immigration is a good, they're not anti-immigrant. All of them point then to the fact there is some sort of problem. We all know there's some sort of problem. And a lot of the problem is not them identifying it, it is how people feel they are being responsive. So what's going on here? Why do we get these, in a sense, preemptive rebuttals? What is the elephant in the room? The elephant in the room, of course, is racism. The need not to be accused of being racist. The shadow of Enoch Powell but more importantly in our post-enlightenment age one of the signs of being rational and reasonable is not to be prejudiced. They cannot be prejudiced. Now there's some really interesting work by Scott Blinder at Oxford on the implications of anti-racism norms on politics. And the point they make is not that people won't be prejudiced but they won't be prejudiced as long as that norm applies and that norm won't apply under conditions where you can put down your discrimination against minorities to some other seemingly neutral explanation. So there will be ways in which you can express prejudice safely because you are immune to being accused of it. Given the norm against prejudice, say Blinder and his colleagues, citizens and political actors often argue for anti-minority policies by reference to legitimate group-neutral social norms and values. And setting up what I'm going to say next quite beautifully, they continue. Proponents of immigration restrictions, for example, can cite group-neutral concerns such as increased burdens on government resources, perceived negative economic impact or an unintended reduction in support for welfare states. Let's look at the reasons. Now the first point I would make is, these are not self-evident. They don't explicitly say this is the problem. It's always implicit. It's kind of taken for granted because it's dangerous to state the problem. One problem is a demographic argument. The small nation argument. This is a small nation. And in this small nation, if you have too many people, there's a problem. Again, what is that problem? Let's push that a bit further. What is that problem? This is Nigel Farage explaining himself being late at a meeting in Wales. It took me six hours and 15 minutes in the car to get here. It should have taken three and a half to four. That has nothing to do with professionalism. It's not his fault. What it does have to do with is a country in which the population is going through the roof, chiefly because of an open-door immigration and the fact the M4 is not as navigable as it used to be. Now, again, this is almost... A pure demographic argument. Simply the number of people so there's less space. <laughs> Actually, it's not entirely an argument against, about demographics. It's also an argument about provision. If you have more people, you could get round it by having more roads. The only way a pure demographic argument works, if you say, can't go out into open spaces because it's too crowded to do it. and Unless you live in Singapore, that's a rather difficult argument to make. And again, this is Cameron. When he says, those who say that levels of immigration are not a problem have never waited on a social housing list or found their child's classroom is overcrowded or felt that their community has changed too fast. So again, what looks like a demographic argument, there are too many of them, becomes an economic argument. It's an argument about provision. You could ask, why then do you call it... (laughs) a migrant problem why don't you call it a provision problem why don't you say that we're not providing enough schools for our workforce but those are taken as a given as a constant it's the migrants who are defined as the problem and not any old migrants but clearly the type of migrants who need social housing the ones who are in the state schools we're talking about a problem and an economic problem of the poor coming to this country. So already we're beginning implicitly to constrain the question. Let's now go on then to the economic arguments. We hear about economic arguments all the time. The, the major issue we're told in contemporary politics is about limiting EC migration because of the burden they are on this country. This is data uh, released by the, in the House of Commons library last November. These, this is the zero point. And this is the line of the number of EU claimants. This is the number of UK claimants. You can't see from this distance how it departs from zero. Completely trivial. And an account of this data in the Daily Telegraph, not in the Guardian, not in the mouthpiece of the liberal metropolitan elite like you lot, in the Daily Telegraph. This is what they said. Seeing as the take-up of benefits amongst migrants is so small, it's also worth asking how big of a draw Britain's welfare system really is. It's really not a big enough problem to warrant the political fuss made about it. Here's another comment by Paul Collier, an economist, ex-head of research at the World Bank, who says the effects of migration on the wages of indigenous workers are trivial relative to the fuss that has been made about them. And he goes on to say, in the long term, any economic effects are trivial. Now that's not to say there aren't problems. Of course there are problems in particular places, if there are particular bottlenecks. There might be problems for those at the very lowest wages. But is that a problem of migration? Or is that a problem of redistribution, that the wealth coming from other migrants is not redistributed? What is more, when people talk about the economic problems, they're actually often not talking about the economic problems. They're talking about your sense of unfairness. We've seen this already. They're talking about your sense of resentment. They're talking about social problems. And when you go to social problems, that's where you begin to find quite a lot in these speeches. They start off saying immigration is a great thing. You've seen that. But then they go on to this long litany of the problems of various types of migration. The crime, the black economy, the slave labour, the beds in sheds. Beggars, rough sleepers, fraudsters and people who collude in sham marriages. This is the problem, the social problem of our society and our morality being undermined by not just the poor but the immoral coming into this country. That's seemingly the problem. Fair rules, and people get here. Fair rules means people integrating into communities and learning English. A sense of fair play is the best antidote we have to resentment and mistrust. So the implication, there's a social problem of resentment. That if these people come here and are treated the same as us, or perhaps even better than us, but even the same as us, there'll be resentment. So the problem is one of social unrest, of anger, of hostility. And then the threats people see to their way of life, their community has changed too fast. So the dislocation, not so much the conflict, but the destruction of social cohesion and the destruction of social solidarity. And so in these arguments, you see a whole series of social psychological assumptions. This is where I get to not in our name, a whole series of social. ...psychological assumptions about the problems of immigration. One, which is occasionally expressed, is the simple... ...if people who are different come here, there'll be hostility. There is something in human nature about being hostile to the other. It's bread in the bone. Sometimes there's a sense of, look, we always favour our own. So, if others come here and are given even equal rights, if they're given jobs... We think, well, they shouldn't have any jobs until we've got all the jobs. So equal or preferential treatment, again, will lead to social unrest. A stronger version, we will necessarily be hostile to those who threaten us. And the final one, diversity will undermine shared identity and social solidarity that the problem about bringing these people in who are different is it will destroy the precious resource that we have which is feeling like a nation, feeling like a community and looking after each other and I want to dwell on that debate because that's quite an appealing one in a sense and a really powerful one it's saying look, we're liberals and we're favourable towards migration but the danger is we also are favourable towards community And if people who are different come in, doesn't it stand to reason that we've got less in common, less to bind us together? And once we lose that sense of cohesion and start looking after each other, the rich won't pay their taxes. I kind of thought that started already, but the rich (laughs) won't pay their taxes. People won't want to give to the NHS for social services. We will lose all that we hold dear, all that we care about. Where's the evidence? A number of people have made a lot about what they call, well, what David Goodhart, first in an article in Prospect, then in a book, called the progressive dilemma. The conflict, he calls it, this is the progressive dilemma, the conflict between solidarity and diversity. The fact that as we become different from one another in lifestyle, values, ethnic and national origins, we become less willing to sacrifice, trust, and share. That's our dilemma. We want diversity, but we want this sharing, and we can't have both. And Paul Collier makes the same argument. Mutual regard is valuable in a society both for cooperation and for equity. Indigenous people lose trust in each other and so resort to opportunistic behaviour. Actually, he's talking about the riots. He's saying the looting happens because bringing in West Indians, Jamaicans with their different culture has undermined social solidarity and has led non-Jamaican young people to be opportunistic in thieving. Much like the argument that David Starkey used on on Newsnight. And where's the evidence? Because these are not Nigel Farage. These are respectable people. Collier, as I've already mentioned, a very senior, respected economist. The evidence comes from a very famous paper. Many of you will know this paper. Robert Putnam, E Pluribus Unum. And what this graph shows, you can't show the details, but what it basically shows is that as you get more ethnic diversity, so you get less trust. That's what this slope shows. So at this end, you've got very diverse communities, that end, less diverse communities, less trust. And the really frightening thing that um, Putnam says is, look, the difficulty about diversity, bringing these people in, bringing different people in, it's not only that it leads to a loss of trust between communities, it leads to a loss of trust within communities. People hunker down, they withdraw. We, we see a destruction of the social. And Putnam says, look, we might not like it. We might hate it, but we cannot ignore the consequences. This argument has been remarkably powerful. Now, one response is to say, well, you know, the States is weird. So here's some evidence conducted in this country, part of a huge set of data collected by Miles Houston and his colleagues at the University of Oxford. But before I go to that, it's a problem with PowerPoints, I forgot this slide, I just want to point out how influential Putnam has been. Here's Richard Sennett, good liberal. The political scientist Robert Putnam has stood, sociologists such as Stouffer and Aristotle on the head. Putnam has found that first-hand experience of diversity in fact leads people to withdraw from these neighbours. You might think That if we have experience of others, we get together. No, they say. Putnam's shown the opposite. And Collier, mutual regard is valuable in a society both for cooperation and for equity. It is challenged by the introduction of culturally distant groups. As I say, you might say, those are very strong conclusions. They're segregationist conclusions. Very strong conclusions. Can we base it just on one study in the States? And now we get to the study from Oxford from Miles Houston's group. And indeed, actually, what Miles finds is that diversity does decrease trust in neighbours. How does it do it? By increasing threat and threat in turn, reduces trust, reduces in-group trust, reduces trust in neighbours. That's the Putnam finding. In Britain, worrying. Except it's important accept. Except that Miles and his group show that there's another effect. And that is that diversity also increases actual contact between people, interaction between people, intimacy between people. And where you do get contact, then you reduce threat, and thereby, by reducing threat, you increase trust. So what the evidence, the social psychological evidence, not Putnam's sociological evidence, the social psychological evidence shows the problem, actually, is diversity without intimacy. If you have people who are proximal, but you don't interact with them, yes, then you might have a sense of threat, but where you actually do have experience of people, it turns round. And actually the original Aristotelian argument holds, experience of others is a positive. Let me give you some other evidence. This is from a very different setting, this is from the town of Northdale in South Africa. And these dark pieces you see are squatter camps, black squatter camps in an Indian neighbourhood. And these colours indicate threat, red being more threatening and indeed you see there's a greater sense of threat by people who live close to these settlements the Putnam finding however however where people have contact again you find more empathy and you find less prejudice diversity without intimacy is a problem not diversity per se, diversity without intimacy diversity with contact and now there is evidence I started looking at the papers and gave up at about the 20th paper that I came across showing similar uh, data in Cyprus, in Northern Ireland, in various bits of the UK. A well-worn finding. And how does it happen? The social psychological question, what is the process? How does contact with people of a different culture actually make things better? Well, we've already seen it. it. Leads to less anxiety and fear. You're less afraid of them. If they're there, but you have no contact with them, they're frightening. Get to know them changes. You have greater empathy. You're more concerned with their problems. You develop positive norms. What is important is not whether you have contact, but the level of contact in the community as a whole. And when there's high contact in the community, even if you don't have contact, you develop positive norms towards the out-group. It's not an individual process, it's a normative process. But here, I come to the critical point, and it's the point that begins to take me back to this notion of the variable self. Because one of the things that these interactions do is not simply to change our attitude towards the other, but to change our notion of self and other. It leads us to think, well, you know, they're not just migrants. And I don't think of myself just as indigenous. They're mothers and fathers like I'm a mother and a father. They're struggling workers like I'm a worker. They might even support the same football club. You don't know. But the point is, you change your notion of self. You get away from this simple binary us and them. Similarly, Work in the Netherlands by Michael Verkutten talks about deprovincialisation. You begin to change your notion of self to include the other. And this is the point that is critical in terms of social psychology. The point about the variable self. And I want to take a slight detour, if I may, to begin to explore the significance of that. Let me start with a very simple study that I did with my colleague Mark Levine many years ago. A study about helping. We took Manchester United fans. We recruited Manchester United fans. And as... They had to go from one room to another to allegedly do the study. They saw somebody running along, falling over, clutching their knee in agony. Did they help them? If this other person was wearing a Manchester United shirt, they did. (coughs) If they were wearing a Liverpool shirt or just a red T-shirt, they didn't. This is the argument that um, Collier and Putnam would be perfectly happy with. In other words, we show more social solidarity to those who are in the group. On its own, that could be a really dangerous argument. And in many ways, that was the argument picked up by the media. The Liverpool Echo had a big front page. Headlines of scientists prove that Manchester United fans hate us. And Mark didn't go to (laughs) Liverpool for a long time afterwards. But the interesting point was this. We had another condition. And in this condition, again, Manchester United fans, we said, we're studying you as football fans. We're interested in you as football fans. Same thing, they go off, they see this person falling over. Now, they help them, whether they are wearing a Manchester United shirt or a Liverpool shirt, because now the notion of self and who's included within it has changed and is more inclusive. The critical point about this study is not we help the in-group, but that critical to helping is how we draw the boundaries of selfhood. Let me move to something perhaps slightly more consequential. This is a study that we did in Scotland, where I live and work. And in this study, we had somebody who was of Chinese origin, who was wearing a Scotland football shirt. And people see her walk along with... Lots of folders, pencils on top, she stumbles, the pencils fall to the ground. Will they pick them up? Will they show civility towards her? Will they show those small acts that add up to telling you you're part of a society? In one condition, we define Scottishness in ethnic terms. To be Scottish is to be born in Scotland of Scottish parents. In another condition we define Scotland in ethnic ter- in civic terms. To be Scottish is to be in Scotland and committed to Scotland. Now this woman by her face was ethically non-Scottish. By her shirt, her Scotland shirt, by the badge on her chest she was civically Scottish. And what indeed you find is there's no helping the ethnic condition. In the civic condition there is helping. So again... The point that I'm making, simple, trivial study in many ways, but it's saying the ways in which we define us, the boundaries of us, the deprovincialization of us, has fundamental consequences. Talking about the self is actually a problem unless you talk about the variable self. Now let me take this one step further to show how it really matters. In 1934 Himmler issued a little booklet called the ABC of National Socialism. And near the start there is a claim. What is the first commandment of every national socialist? Love Germany above all else and your ethnic comrade as yourself. It's about loving the in-group. That sounds quite nice, doesn't it? But of course the sting in the tail is how you define the in-group. You define it ethnically so Jews, gypsies and others aren't part of that in-group. They are excluded. They become a target. The work is done. Not in the talking about loving the in-group but drawing the boundaries. Now let me give you another example. Occasionally people talk about Bulgaria as a miracle of the Holocaust. They can overly romanticise it. See Bulgaria was under Axis control. And as part of its alliance with with the United States, with Nazi Germany, it took over a number of lands such as Macedonia. And from those, Jews were deported. But from the lands of old Bulgaria, not a single Jew was deported. And twice, in forty-one and 1943, the Germans tried to get them deported. And twice, there were mass mobilizations against it. And let's look at one of the core texts, we analysed these texts. What is interesting about these texts is they rarely talk about Jews, them. They talk about a national minority, a national minority who think and speak in Bulgarian. They forge their way of thinking and feeling out of Botev, Vatsov, Penchkov, Slavyakov, Yavarov. They sing Bulgarian folk songs and tell Bulgarian folk tales. At one level, this is exactly the same as Himmler. It's about loving and supporting members of the in-group. It's about solidarity with members of the in-group, especially when they're under threat. The work is done in drawing the boundaries of the categories, not taking them for the granted, asking the question, who is of us? That's where the work is done. That's where the drawing of boundaries can become deeply, profoundly consequential. Now, one more bit of social psychology before I begin to draw this in. If the boundaries of categories are so important, if they are variable and how we set them is so important to how we act towards others and how we feel about others and whether we show solidarity to them or else resent what is given to them, how do the categories come about? Part of the claim of Goodhart and Collier is similarity. Surely, if people are similar, as I say, if we're more similar, it's easier to see us as a group. In 1958, Don Campbell wrote a very famous paper on entitativity. It's a good word. Entitivity. I'd say it a few times. It's a great word. How do we see things as entities? And he wrote, famously, for human social groupings, the boundaries drawn by similarity seem somewhat secondary to those based upon common fate. He was drawing on the Gestalt principles of Wertheimers and others. And his point was, actually, in many ways, what is not important is what we are in the here and now. It's are we travelling together? Have we got the same trajectories? Are we moving through time in the same way? And there is incidentally plenty of empirical evidence, I was reading again, about 20 papers showing the importance of common fate over and above similarity in creating senses of entity in work groups and other groups. There's a critical change, because of course if you talk about similarity you're talking about the qualities of the individual entities. If you talk about common fate, you can be very different. But that common fate is often brought about in society by what others do. Why did West Indians begin to see themselves as West Indians? Actually, they didn't, first of all. They saw themselves as from localities or from particular islands. It was the common fate of racism which created the category. Categories of common fate are created in society, not in the individual entities. And the second point... The second point is that if you talk about similarity, similarity is in the present. And there's only one present, so we can kind of assume that there is either a reality or a not reality to groups. If we talk about trajectories, about the future, the future is always multiple. We could see ourselves going in different ways. We don't know yet, so categories always become contested. They are part and parcel of social experience, but they are always contested. And the point that I want to make is this. It's not that similarity determines categorisation. And it's not that diversity is a problem for categorisation. In many ways, actually, categorisation happens as a relationship between those who are different. In a football team, you don't want 11 goalkeepers. You wouldn't want 11 Rinaldos. You want diversity, but a common fate as a team. So it's not that similarity or diversity impact on categorisation. It's that categorisation determines what we think of similarity or diversity. We have some data to show that when you see people as of the in-group, then diversity is interesting, enriching, it's good, we like it. When we see dissimilarity as out-group, then it's threatening, then it's other. So it's the way we define categories which determines the way we think about similarity and diversity, not vice versa. And that has a profound implication. And if you only take away one thing from what I have to say, it's this talk. It's this, sorry, this slide. Well, you could take away the talk, but you could also take away the slide. You see, the point about the immigration debate is that to call it the immigration debate presupposes that we identify people in terms of whether they are migrants or not. It asks us to see them as migrants or not migrants. Not in terms of whether they're mothers or fathers or workers like us or, or poor people like whatever, no. It presupposes the terms of the debate. It constructs the terms of the debate. What's more, it constructs them as problematic. It's not just that these people are different, but it's the immigration problem. So while it claims to reflect something in our psychology, what it's actually doing is creating a particular set of categories. A particular set of relations between people and thereby making difference a problem. It's not the difference per se, it's the taken for grantedness of the categories. It's the fact that we seem to be finding it impossible to look beyond the fact you define somebody as a migrant as opposed to the 101 things that they might be. And you begin to see the different ways of seeing if you look at anti-deportation campaigns. One of my students, in fact a graduate of of LSE, uh, MSC, has been looking at anti-deportation campaigns. So one of the campaigns she looks at was called Precious, this is Precious, belongs to Glasgow. Precious's mother broke up with her father, So their immigration status became problematic and they were going to be deported and the danger was that the family back in Malawi might take the child away. Now, we analysed the various arguments being used, much like the Bulgarian case, but at the centre of it is the notion that Precious is not an immigrant. Precious is a Scot, is Glaswegian. This photo is a beautiful representation of that. Look at these cultural markers. Iron brew. What could be more Scottish than that? Have you ever come across anybody from Malawi who drinks iron brew? She's got to be Scottish. To like that muck, you really do have to be Scottish. Let me tell you that. Um, the X factor. A really dense and rich representation. She is Scottish. She is of us. Or again, look at this photo. It's a, I find this incredibly powerful. It's mother and daughter holding a leaflet of the possibility of mother and daughter being ripped apart. Now the point is that once you represent them, not as immigrants, but as a family, as mother and daughter, then there is an obligation to keep them apart. Once you represent them in terms of this identity, then this becomes impossible. What could be worse than taking a child from her mother? In other words, the categories through which The papers and the politicians' talk very much seem to presuppose an identity which then constitutes a problem which the politicians can then recuperate by saying, well, I'm just responding to your concerns. But other identities are available. Multiple identities are available. Understanding the variability of the self is absolutely critical understanding the dynamics and the power of this debate. So with that in mind, let me come to conclusions. I have three levels of conclusion. The first I want to say is that the immigration debate... ...when you plough through the arguments, seems to converge on a social argument... And that social argument seems to rest on certain social psychological assumptions about the nature of groups and relations between groups. And those assumptions, I hope to have suggested to you, are just plain wrong. There is nothing progressive about the progressive dilemma. It is no better to essentialize people in terms of culture and to say they're an inherent problem because of their inherent culture than it is to make them a problem because they're inherent genes. Culturally essentialized racism is no different in its impact from genetic racism. This is not a progressive dilemma, this is the abnegation of all forms of progressivism. And personally, I came into social psychology in order to contest these notions of human nature, these broad claims about human nature, which are used to defend an all-too-unequal world. They are wrong. They're plain wrong. And I think our discipline needs to stand up and say so. That's number one. The second is the pronouncement and the practices of immigration control. In many ways create, perhaps exacerbate, perhaps even create the problems they purport to solve. Britta Anderson makes this point very nicely, she says look, you know there is this assumption, for instance, that workers from various parts of Eastern Europe are just culturally, it's just in their culture to be harder working, and that's why they get the jobs, the cultural essentialism, but she argues no, in many ways the regulations which say that if they leave a job then they lose not only the job but their immigration status makes them much more dependent upon the employer work much harder, what is essentialised as culture is actually produced by the regulations, but equally. To tell us again and again and again and again, these people are a problem. These people will destroy your culture. These people will lead to conflict. Of course there are going to be consequences. And of course then you can read off those consequences as a warrant of what you subsequently do. It's a vicious circle. And I think we need to look very carefully at how this debate creates, constitutes the problems, as I say, that it purports to solve. So the real question, it's a big social psychological question, I haven't had time to go into it in any great detail. We must address how people are constituted as immigrants. And that's a problem for what Ed Miliband calls everyday people. How have we created these categories? What are the discourses, what are the structures, what are the social practices which create particular forms of social categorization. The core question of social psychology is the core question of the immigration debate. Secondly, my second conclusion is on the variable self. This is something I wrote years ago. If categories relate to social forms then taking categories for granted removes our choice over the type of world we live in, the rarefication of social categories is a raw road to tyranny. A healthy democracy depends on a continuous questioning of the terms of identity. What I mean by that is if the ways in which we define who and we are and who they are determines my values and what I want to do and who I exclude, then the social world very largely depends upon... The terms of those categories. The ability to mobilise people in solidarity to challenge inequality depends upon those categories. If we take categories for granted, then we freeze the social world into its present social forms. This issue, as I say, of de categories, often it sounds very arcane, it's a sort of modern social theory type of word that turns everybody off, but it's a highly concrete, consequential thing. To freeze we and they limits who can be us, limits forms of solidarity, creates forms of conflict. It's an absolutely critical issue. And on social psychology, I've taken this from the LSE website, Kurt Levine and, and Hilda, the great Hilda Hemmelweit. I do believe, and I hope to have suggested to you in some way, that social science does need a social psychology which can help us understand how the social, how society and politics constitutes subjects, our sense of who we are, what we are, how we're positioned relative to others. And these subjects then constitute politics and thereby for better or worse create the society we live in. I hope to have persuaded you in some small measure that 50 years later there is something worth celebrating both about LSE and its contribution and about our small, our little-known and our much-misunderstood discipline. Thank you.
0: Thank you very much, Steve. Very inspirational talk. And Caroline's now going to talk for about five or six minutes, followed by
2: Suki, and after that we'll take questions from the floor. Okay, thanks very much. I'm not sure if this is on. Um, yeah, great, yeah. good. Uh, well, I mean, um, that was a fantastic talk, uh, Steve. Uh, I know your work well, and I've studied it for, for a long time, but... Um, Listening to you speak, I find it very uh, inspiring, because it points to a critique, and I think a very important critique, of uh, our discipline and work that um, has been done, but also places an obligation on us to think about the consequences of developing... Uh, different approaches uh, in terms of how they relate to the the social relations that we live, that we research, that we're part of, and all the rest of it. Okay, so I need to be brief. So um, I'm going to sort of make three points. One is about the disappearance of social psychology from uh, debates of uh, social issues such as immigration, And I was pleased you raised the point about um, individualism because I think that, you know, that's something that Rob Farr, Ivana Markova uh, wrote a lot, key figures for um, social psychology um, at the LSE. And I think we still need to take this charge very, very seriously uh, within the field of racism. I think there's still a lot of work on prejudice reduction, focusing on prejudiced individuals. We can see the, the same kinds of debates now happening around terrorism, around extremism. And it's really important, I think, to uh, look at the ways in which psychology itself has um, Prevented or subdued an analysis of the of the politics and, and institutional um, dynamics uh, that produce um, ideologies and practices. Um, of prejudice and, and so forth, as we've seen. So I think you know we need to think about the ways in which institutions and institutional practices, on the one hand, produce ideologies of prejudice, um, and also what the practices are, what the institutional practices are, that allow for the contesting of identities, mobilising identities um, in the way that. Um, Steve uh, talked about. So it's not only a problem of kind of representation from the outside, it's also a kind of problem of individualism within the discipline. But I think there's another kind of issue with psychology in, in terms of why we're not sometimes leaping to the forefront of talking about Uh, these things in in the public debates and media discussions and so forth. And that, I think, is often because we are wary of taking the position of expert because we don't want to define what Britishness is, what multiculturalism is, what immigration is. You know, a, a lot of our work here in these sorts of fields is looking at what do these things mean in quite different contexts, in quite different communities. But I think that places a very awkward tension when sometimes we need to position ourselves as experts of the processes kind of outlined, but in a way that doesn't um, speak for other communities, if you like, or position us as those who are constituting what these processes really are about. so that leads me to a kind of second point, which is about Putman. And I think it's very, very important to develop a critique of the work that he's, that he's done. And this very easy um, analysis that equates diversity and mistrust and sees diversity as something that challenges cohesion and all the rest of it. But I think, you know, in some of Putman's works, he does make a claim for the fact that um, you know he 's arguing that diversity may threaten communities in the short to mid term, and we need to look into the longer term and we need to look at what institutional processes can um, can can challenge that and I think we need to sort of take take that up and focus on that and my last point then is uh, is um, you know connecting back to Uh, some of the uh, references you made around Britishness and national identities, because you've um, really uh, highlighted the importance of looking at who is framing the debate in any particular context. We can think about Bulgaria, we can think about the current debates happening in the UK, Um, around uh, Britishness, around defining British values and um, thinking about this in terms of educational curricula. And, you know, I found it important in in my work, which uh, is often uh, looking at um, these issues in schools, is the importance of understanding something about the institutional practices that allow people to... um, to, to, to allow people to engage with the process of categorisation rather than to be told that um, you know it's important to, to respect cultural difference uh, it's important to understand what these values are to understand points of connections between British values and values elsewhere you know school children across the UK don't need to be kind of taught or have these values imposed upon them, they need to be part of the debate that positions them centrally as uh, as people who are producing these categories. These are the categories that kind of shape their lives and all the rest of it. And I think not to do that is not to think about, not to find those spaces where we have a kind of um, democratic conversation about the production of national categories creates a vacuum where, um, you know, this is something that your work has shown in quite different contexts, but the experiment, the BBC experiment, for example, kind of showing the dangers of a vacuum of power where others can come in. So here, um, thinking about discourses of the far right coming in to define what Britishness is in a way that very much excludes um, others from that. So hopefully that was relatively coherent. (laughs)
0: Thanks, 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 Caroline. Can Suki go and respond after that?
3: Well, um, it's no mean feat. Um, I'm the cuckoo in the nest because I am by default a sociologist, but I'm beginning to wonder if I might be by default claimed by social psychology because I'd like to start from the very end and suggest that this really your three summary points are profoundly sociological <laughs> so I don't want to undermine the importance of the psychological aspects <laughs> but surely indeed the challenge to cultural essentialism is the you know, bedrock of um, the work on uh, race and ethnicity cultural studies um, from the last several decades and I, I would say that perhaps also from my own perspective thinking about um, postcolonial studies and as a feminist postcolonial theorist, not theorist, um, someone who engages with those discourses, um, that would also be at the heart of that kind of an analysis. So I think what is interesting is, and I I said to Caroline before, I don't want us to get into disciplinary debates, is perhaps thinking about how productive those dialogues might be of of looking... you know perhaps more creatively um, you know as an aside the, the lack of public intellectuals in the sociological realm I think you know the lack of engagement the, the lack of expertise the refusal actually of the, the notion of the expert and what constitutes expert knowledge in these incredibly complex domains is really important and indeed you know as we try and tell um, anybody who engages with these debates just saying it's all a bit very, all a bit complicated um, is not going to affect any change. I suppose, you know, coming back to your, your second point about the fixity of categories, I would say that is also the absolutely crucial work of um, the sociologist and how we might look at that in relation to the social psychologist is terribly important. If the categories aren't fixed, I would like to give a small example about the ways in which also racism... Um, I'm not as coherent as you. As an aside, you know, what, what is racism? How does racism work? Uh, I think it's a very complicated question. And, of course, it, it's not static, and it doesn't stay fixed. And our categories in the UK are constantly changing. The categories, because, of course, I would also agree with you that these categories are producing identities, subjects, and so on, not reflecting them. So, for example, around the category of mixedness, which is something that I've been worked on, um, Trying to get mixed race categorisations put onto the British census was something that arose from campaigning by groups of um, people who were recognising uh, the mixed nature of uh, multicultural, modern Britain. What's happened to though that that introduction of the idea of mixed race, mixedness is that that in itself has been um, taken over and has been used in a way to further pathologise particular groups of people, to provide evidence for particular problems and pathologies of cultural mixing and racial mixing, and that we have to be really careful about, um, we have to just recognise that it is partly the instability of the categories, the fear around the instability of these categories, that actually provides the impetus for the fixing of those categories from certain groups of people. And I would throw in the notion of power. You talked about who frames the debates and who has the power to actually dominate these debates. Um, And in relation to that, then, I I would also put in a plea to think about um, temporality. So when we're, we're asking how do we trace these debates people have traced these debates and through that post-colonial lens about looking at the continuing present so the historical ways in which no, the debates about migration are not the same as they were in 1968 however, to be able to see where some of these fears and anxieties such that they are are produced and reproduced through social discourses and in um, public discourse around migration I think we can see that you do not have to be explicitly racist and see that, you know there's a lot of work on saying where the absence of the language of race actually facilitates the racist action of course and to, to really pay attention to the temporality of the debates and what's at stake in particular moments um, and to, to match that with to continue to, to, you know, to, to look back as well as look forward in terms of the common fate um, have I probably used up my time I've got one more minute um, oh my goodness, and 65 things to say. I mean, I, I i just, I don't know. I don't really want, perhaps I should stop then. Um... I wanted to say something about individualism and neoliberalism, but we'll, we'll hold back on that. I think what's interesting is if the problem of psychology is it's all it's seen seems about being individuals, but the dominant discourse that's shifted away from structure and inequality and process now is based in the individual, it's even more surprising that psychology hasn't had more to say, given that the mark of uh, the, the debate is absolutely about the individual. Um, and that seems really strange as well, the, the sidelining. Of what insights might come from?
0: Thank you so much, Steve. Do you want to respond, or should we take some questions first?
3: Look, let me
1: respond very briefly, if I may. I mean, the first thing is, if we get to a stage where psychology, in a sense, retakes its seat at the table of the social sciences, I would be very happy to have these debates. I mean, I think we have both absented ourselves because we think you know, we, we will get, uh, we'll be taken more seriously and get more money if we look more like the, the natural and hard sciences. Uh, and we have been absented because... Uh, explanations which try to exclude everybody else, reductive explanations which say you don't need to look at the social, lead to a reaction which says well, we don't want to look at you. Then we can discuss exactly where you know, the boundaries are and what is particularly psychological. I mean a lot of work that is sociological addresses psychological questions and vice versa. Personally, I read far less psychology than I do in other disciplines because I think I will learn much more in other disciplines. But I do think that there are a couple of psychological questions which, which, which do need to be Address. The first is, I mean, my particular version of psychology is that I do believe that the, um, you know, the constructs of our understanding, of our self-understanding, of our relationship to others are always socially produced. But I think they have entailments... Which depend upon a psychologic and not just a sociologic. In other words, I think to define self and other has a whole series of consequences which are very socially important. And to unpack those uh, is extremely uh, important. That's one of two of the things that I've, I've been trying to do. And, and the second is the question of you know, exactly what is it? about the social and what aspects of the social are going to be consequential in forming subjects. Um, And again that requires a psychological explanation. When I think of these things I always think of probably Marx's most historical and sociological work with the 18th Brumaire of Louis Napoleon and that rests on the question why was it in 1848 when all the quote subjective conditions looked like conditions for revolution revolution did not happen. So A good social psychology is one that engages with the social but actually helps you to focus on what aspects of the social are absolutely critical uh, in terms of understanding what people will then do, how they will see themselves, how they will see others. So I actually see a good social psychology not turning its head away from the social, as so much does, but telling us how to turn our heads towards the social, what to look at what to understand is critical. I, I therefore do completely agree with your point that de you know, uh, I'm not pretending I'm the first to have said it, a million people have said it, but I think, I think there are contributions to that debate which are distinctive.
0: Thank you, thank you. I'd like to open the floor now. People have comments or questions. Um, And if you can make your comments brief, so we have time to to speak to as many people as possible. I'll take two at a time. Should we take the person upstairs first and this person downstairs? And then you can
4: respond to two at a time. Is that all right? Anybody? Thank you. Um, Thank you, Steve, for coming. Um, Having returned from being immersed in a much more individualized form of social psychology in the United States, I came here tonight to get a a fearless restatement of sociological social psychology, and I wasn't disappointed. Um, My question, and I hope it's not a semantic one, it's about whether it's um, common fate um, that really matters in terms of the psychological definition of of cohesive categories and solidarity or interdependence. And I say that thinking about the literature from Tocho Yamagishi, the quite early stuff, Looking at um, how uh, once we shift um, interdependence and people's dependence on each other, we also shift with it subtle categorization and identities. And the more recent work of um, Kurzban, Tubi, and Cosmides that can Race be a raised paper again, showing that once you shift um, independence and interdependence, um, you shift identities. And that's because when you, you can have a common fate, but perhaps still be potentially competing for resources. And so maybe interdependence is the important thing. And 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 why? And and if not. I've always wondered why those uh, Yamagishis and that later evolutionary work has been somewhat neglected perhaps in social identity literature on this.
1: Okay, well, two points. First of all, as a comment, as an aside, um, last year on two successive weekends I went to two conferences. Uh, One was the highest status US social psychology conference uh, called CESP uh, where all the great names of social psychology uh, were and I looked at the programme. You know how you used to go into a video shop and you'd go in and you'd look for a video and you couldn't find anything you wanted, so you lowered your standards and you looked again and then you looked for a third time. That was how I felt when I looked at the programme. It was a remarkable programme which talked as if nothing was going on outside. This was just, just after Ferguson. There was nothing about, you know, collective struggles or inequality and power, yet these were the people... If you are a social psychology undergraduate or postgraduate, you would have heard of. These are the people who get all the glittering prizes. These are the people who do very well in the ref. And the f- preceding weekend, I've been to a conference of critical psychologists in Turkey. These were marginal, vulnerable, nobody you will ever have heard of. Dealing with Gezi Square, dealing with the Kurds, dealing with passionate issues. There was a complete negative correlation, I think, between the relevance and the excitement and the status. And I think that speaks about our discipline. There's a long and technical debate here about interdependence versus categorization. And um, the tradition I came from um, always put categorization uh, in a sense, before interdependence. Because one of the problems was that hitherto, people wanted to say that groups grow up, in part because of the bonds and the pre-existing relationships between people. It was as if, you know, it's like a sticky ball type of analogy, that everyone began to stuck together, and that's how you got a category. But the problem about that was that it's very hard to explain the categories that really matter in this world, to understand things like national categories or to understand things like uh, religious categories or whatever it might uh, be. And so the argument was that you can have very clear, and there's a lot of evidence to suggest, that you can have uh, categorization uh, without... uh, interdependence and indeed categorization creates a sense of interdependence. In terms of the issue of common fate, well uh, I'm not that sold on common fate but the point that I wanted to make was trajectories that's, that's the point that's particularly interesting to me. It's moving together through time and the critical point about that is, um, is the temporal dimension a lot of social psychology is terribly naive. It talks about a social psychology in a sense as if it's vested entirely in the present rather than our understandings are a function of the trajectories that we are going on. And it's because of that suggestion of common fate moving together through time, which I don't think you get from interdependence, that I like to use the term. But we were discussing earlier, we are stuck with various languages. I, I, I don't like the term identity because the notion identity kind of suggests to us that we are all the same, and so it becomes harder to argue that similarity uh, is not a basis of identity. It seems self-evident it is. So sometimes, again, the languages we use constrain our explanations. But we're stuck with it, so I try to make the best of it that I can.
0: Thank you. The person...
1: Yeah, um, you thank
0: say you. you. Say who you are first, please. The
5: manufacturing base has shifted from the China. Can we see some change in England now and China.
0: All right. Um, do you mind just holding a question with the, the next person is the man at the back, and we'll.
6: No, uh, th- thank you for your speech. Uh, very insightful. Um, As you have explained to us um, what uh, categorizations and situations, circumstances in society are necessary that um, um, a precondition for, for racism. Uh, what I'm interested in especially is why we have sudden peaks um, of the emergence of racism, um, especially in the European context for the last seven years. Uh, when we look to UKIP, um, Gerd Wilders and, and, and the Netherlands and his racist friends and the AFD and the Norwegian Progress Party, why in the last seven years have they had so much success in elections and why do so many people break the taboo now? Is there an explanation for
4: that?
1: Well, that's kind of a big question. Um, the, the difficulty is I suddenly become uh, positioned as being an expert on, on absolutely everything. I, I, to me, actually, one of the things that is interesting, I recently read Ford and, and Goodwin's analysis of UKIP. Right. And they characterise UKIP supporters as the left behind, those who feel disengaged from uh, the political process, those who feel that they are not spoken for. And the interesting thing, I think, is in how in different parts of Europe, uh, the left behind, the disenfranchised, move in different directions in part. Actually, simply as a function of politics, in part in, in, in terms of what uh, social movements are available and what solutions are available. If you want to look, for instance, in Scotland, um, beforehand I was having the beginnings of a passionate debate with Ivana about the, uh, the Scottish referendum. Um, actually, the reason why the vote was so close wasn't because of, if you like, traditional nationalists. It was, if you like, the left behind. I mean, disenfranchised, working-class um, uh, voters in Glasgow and Dundee who, who felt that uh, you know, conventional politics gave them nothing, who felt that a Scottish... Uh, state might be the basis of an alternative politics. They were mobilised very powerfully, not by the SNP they voted despite Alex Salmond they were mobilised by grassroots working, uh, you know, radical movements in, in Scotland. Now I think a really interesting question is what's going to happen with that impetus. Is that going to develop into some form of political expression or are people going to feel disillusioned? And let, let me put it this way, um, Years ago I I, I wrote a chapter on contact theory in 1984 and one of the points that I was trying to do looking at charting the history of of migration to Britain and at some levels it's very simplistic but I don't think it's entirely irrelevant. If you are a worker in a particular area and other workers come into that area now of course as the politicians tell us that creates pressure on the resources okay? there are going to be less places there's going to be less housing but how are you going to solve that are you going to solve that uh, politically by arguing that the issue is an issue of provision and develop effective strategies to fight for more provision, or are you going to say that the provision is a given, is a constant, and so the only way to solve this problem is to keep others out? Okay? Now, those different forms of politics are bound up with different forms of categorization. And a form of categorisation which is not practical which doesn't seem to result in any effective outcome, is literally useless, so you're going to discard it. So to to, to my mind, the issues of the nature of the categories of whether you uh, constitute people as black or as workers is bound up with the politics of solving uh, the problems. It's, it's the politics again of the future which is quite critical and I think um, uh, that might help us understand the ways in which those who feel under pressure and those who feel disenfranchised are moving in very different directions in different parts of Europe.
0: Thanks Steve. We've got time for two more questions. Firstly the gentleman in the scarf if you can talk into the microphone please mm-hmm. and then we'll have a question from that side in a moment.
5: Now as we know that um, the uh, manufacturing base has shifted from England to China. Now, will there be some changes in the um, pre- oh, uh, old base? L- like um, yeah. uh, yeah. manufacturing is being done in China mm. uh, and not in um, Birmingham or Manchester. Mm. So, uh, do we have to change our base as well?
1: Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, again, I would. I think you know there are there are many problems facing us. There are, there are problems. I mean, self-evidently, there are problems of restructuring. Self-evidently, you know, uh, China and the rise of China and and, um, and production in China has had a massive type of impact within this country. Um, but I suppose, again, I come back to the question of how do we define and constitute. That problem, because that's going to be critical to our solution. It has, of course, implications for the nature of the economy we are in. It has, of course, implications for the type of education system we have. It has implications, of course, for the types of economic activity we do. Um, but as I say, they don't have to be constituted in terms of problems of migration.
0: Thanks. All right. We'll we have one more. Was there somebody here? Yes. And then we'll stop.
6: Thanks. Hello. Sorry, I don't remember the, uh, the position of Sami Nair. Maybe you know him. Um, but yeah, he was, used to work in the European Union and he was, uh, I, I don't know, an assessor of uh, uh, this president in, in France. But basically, he's a, a top guy thinking. And he said once the problem of immigration is to demonstrate that immigration is not a problem. Basically, and I agree with you that the definition of the problem is going to help us to solve it. But unfortunately, the definition of the problem is presented in a way that, uh, let me tell you, I'm welfare rights advised worker, and last year uh, changed uh, the politics uh, in terms of uh, for my own, uh, European migrants, where that um, even before in the practice it was like that, but since January last year, is into the law in force, where European uh, Union citizens, migrants, cannot come here and claim benefits just as they arrive. And on 10th of November, it was another tougher change against European migrants. But on the 20th, Cameron came up and say again and talk about the the problem of the immigration and they come to uh, take our benefits is not possible legally. How can we have a problem of immigration, as you said, defining a problem that doesn't exist? Mm. Thank
1: you. I mean, the first thing I would say is well in effect, you gave my talk in that in, in, in that phrase so so I, sh- I thank you for that. It could have been much briefer. I could have spared you a lot of that. Um, that, that, that that's number one. The second is that i mean clearly the sorts of things that we've been arguing, are in a minority. We go against the common sense. We go against the taken for granted. What is more, we clearly see a dynamic interrelationship between, if you like, the, the, the psychological, um, uh, the cultural, and the material. Things that start off as beliefs are sedimented into practices, which sometimes are sedimented into you know, our physical uh, environment. I often think for instance as an example that if you wanted to challenge as many people tried to challenge 20 years ago still do the nature of the family um, and wanted to talk about alternative forms of being that's rather different, difficult when we have a housing stock which is based on small units for a few people living together that the ideology has become a material uh, way of relate, getting people to relate in particular ways and of course the immigration debate has now become sedimented into a whole series of, of legal forms it's been sedimented in a whole series of institutions. We can't get rid of it immediately. However, it's a little bit like a super tanker. To argue that, you know, you can't say, oh, can you turn round and it will do it in two seconds doesn't mean that you shouldn't begin to try and turn the levers in order to achieve change in the long term. And one of the aphorisms that I, I cite endlessly and people will be bored by it, but I very much like it. It's an aphorism by, by Gramsci where he talks about uh, uh, pessimism of the intellect optimism of the will. When it comes to the immigration debate, I have great pessimism of the intellect, because one is against, uh, up against so much. But I don't think it is an ahistorical necessity. I do have optimism of the will, and I think we need to put our efforts, put our shoulder to beginning to turn the supertanker around.
5: Oh,
0: Brilliant, Steve. That's a great great thing to end off with. I just want to thank you very much indeed for doing a wonderful talk at two levels. Firstly, in relation to advancing our understandings of the social psychology of categorization. I think whenever I hear a talk by you, it slightly shifts the way in which I see something, and that's a great gift that you give to all of us. And secondly, to make a much-needed contribution to obviously an extremely topical but very problematic debate. All the best, and thank you audience for participating, and thank you to our commentators.